Well, hello and welcome to The Marino with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome back to another Questions and Tangents episode. This is where I answer or attempt to answer the questions which have been sent to me. Um, I think I put something out a couple of podcasts back and said, hey, no one's writing to me. What's going on? Well, I have been the very happy recipient of uh, 20, 25 uh, emails, um, lots of things from lots of people, a couple that we can get through quickly. Um, had four different people say, don't change the music. This is in my ongoing war with um, Steve Nordyke of the uh, of Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> who says that the music's killing him. I got other people telling me that I do need to change the music to be something even more organy. Uh, I was told by, um, oh, now who was it? It was telling me I got to get a book of tea in. Uh, we're going to be reading his uh, email a little bit later on. Oh, I don't know. We'll get there. Douglas, it was Doug, yeah, Douglas McCrutchen. Okay, so he was telling me I should get uh, Booker T and the MGs and play Green Onions. That's the one that was. That um, would be um, equally good uh, from the organ point of view, but uh, we're going to stick with what we got for now until there's a an avalanche of uh, of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> negativity against it at least what everybody said is uh is recognizable if nothing else um okay so kicking it off let's well let's uh let's have a look at uh, doug's email he wrote to me um on let me see about a week ago i guess it was now just slightly under and um he's written a lovely wonderful long uh email he's actually uh, a psychology researcher at, at the university in sweden which i'm guessing that he was uh, looking to do some kind of um research paper on me and try and work out what's what exactly is up with me um, he said that uh, doing a um, doing some kind of questionnaire for people that listen to the podcast could be good he points out that you know a lot of the sailing podcasts that are out there are just mostly interviews um, I, I've done a couple of interviews um, we've got another one coming up this week I don't want to make it that it's only that it's really awesome to be able to talk to other people and obviously now because of COVID and because everybody's getting a lot more uh, happy with talking via Skype and Zoom and all those things, it is easy to reach out to people. Um, but I just don't think it's the only thing that we should be doing. There's, there's other things that we could do. I've got a mix of things going on right now with answering questions and reading the Slocum one and gear review. And I think that's where it's going to go. So I agree with what Doug said there. Not too many of them. But if you've got people that you'd like me to interview, if there's somebody that's been particularly of interest that you've listened to on other podcasts. Um, as Doug says, you know, different people interacting will create a different story each time. So maybe we've heard what Andy uh, Shell on his brilliant podcast on the wind has got out of Ken Reed, something like that, but maybe I get a different story out of him. So if you've got anybody that you'd like me to interview, um, definitely uh, send me those suggestions. Um, Doug goes on. Doug's smart, you see, because he's realized that um, I'm I'm asking for ideas and he listens to a lot of different sailing podcasts. So he tells me um, he says, uh, what was it you were telling me, Doug, that you were. Yeah, I think uh, that um, he's, he said he's got a, a little boat um, or all, all boats. Are tw yeah, a piddly little 26 foot sailboat. That's not a piddly little boat. That's that's a good sized boat. I'm just. I work in a world of, of, of boats that cross oceans, but uh, I've got that 29-foot westerly, and uh, it's fantastic in terms of getting out on the water and enjoying ourselves. That's uh, don't, uh, don't sell yourself short there, Doug. But, um, 
Yeah, he's realized that uh, if he actually writes to me and gives me ideas for the podcast, then he is, as he puts it, curating his own listening. So uh, feel free to um, drop me your thoughts as well. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure how exactly we do a, an interview. No, sorry, an interview, a questionnaire for uh, people that are listening to the podcast. I think uh, write to me with your ideas. That's the best way of doing it. Write to me and tell me what you think. And then we keep shifting it towards what we want it to be. But thank you for your long uh, email there, Doug, with all those different ideas. Um, the other long email I got just this morning, and that's what's really propelled me out of my bed. Uh, Rob Cochran got in contact. And thank you, Rob, for writing to me. It, you must have thought when you press send, like, uh-oh, I'm going to come off like a crazy here because it's a very long email. But as he goes through loads of really interesting stories and um, how the things that I've been doing on the podcast have kind of like tied into what was going on in his life. Um, he was saying that uh, he was listening to, oh, which one was it? Was it the Slocum one? Or I was talking about that kind of cocooning effect that you can get when you're in your car and the music's on, you've got your coffee, everything's going fine, the heat's exactly the way you want it to be and the seat's adjusted perfectly. And then, boom, you're involved in an accident or something's going wrong and suddenly you realize that you were um, getting a little bit too ahead of yourself. It's not really that safer environment. Yeah, we were talking about the um, when Slocum meets up with the ship Olympia and he then makes this comment that perhaps their, their navigation was so accurate that actually it could help lead towards some kind of um, event, some negative event in the future because they just, oh, we know exactly where we are. We're all driving around with chart plotters now, of course, or your phone clutched in your, in your hand, driving around like I am the little boat. And I'm just going to drive myself around these little yellow bits, which I know are dangerous, and the green bits, which I know are dangerous, and it's all fine. But if anything's not quite right, um, then you get yourself into an issue. And that's what Rob is telling me about in his story. He was on the way to the airport to pick up his daughter, uh, only had about 70 kilometers to go until he got there. And then suddenly the sound of the tires on the car starts to sound different, and he realizes he's got a flat tire. So in true sailorly fashion, being very, very pragmatic, he set in motion a plan which had two distinct different arms to it, parallel processing the same problem. He set to fixing the tire himself. It's a more modern vehicle, and you know you've got those kind of like little release bolts. You've got to find where that is in the trunk and then use the tire brace to wind down the bolt, and that's going to release the tire from underneath the car. So he's doing all of that stuff, but at the same time, he calls the CAA, which is the breakdown assistance people, and, you know, they take like an hour to get there, but at least that is in motion. And it, it ended up with a good uh, outcome. He wasn't late for what he was doing, but um, it did end up with a bit at the end that the CAA turned up and like basically tightened the nuts up from on the on the job he'd uh, already put in motion. But it's interesting to see how the uh, critical thinking that you have to do on a boat um, can then be translated back to everyday life. And I do always find that if you're dealing with people who are firefighters, who are police officers, who are military, they've got this kind of thing that they can drop into, this, uh, this, uh, this, this way that their brain will start to work on cue as soon as some kind of emergency starts. And it comes from being involved in all sorts of um, emergencies. And uh, they are very, very different to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis than normal people. Um, sailors, I think, uh, bizarrely have the same thing because being on a boat can you know you're sitting relaxing at the back and you're supping your drink and you're having fun and suddenly wow, the jib starts you know thrashing and it's the sheets broken and you got to, you're suddenly catapulted into situations very very quickly and I think you develop this kind of underlying mm, 
yeah, I guess that's the word, like criticality in your thinking that you're, you're always looking for what may go wrong. You're kind of checking things all the time. And then when something starts to evolve into a problem, you're very quick to react to it and, and to have good problem solving methods with it. So, um, Rob, thank you for right. There's so much more in his email. Like I should be publishing this as a, uh, a, a short, um, short novella. He said that he hasn't actually done any, um, a creative writing for about 10 years, although he'd, he'd uh, I think you need to get on that, Rob. I think you need to start writing something for yourself. I was very interested to read it. I'm sure other people would be too. Um, of a more technical nature, I also got a question from uh, uh, Joel Florek, who uh, wrote to me via Facebook and was asking me on my thoughts with uh, the Vendee Globe and the foil situation. So um, you wouldn't necessarily know about this, but I was actually very much involved with the uh, foils going onto the iMocha 60s that are now doing the Vendee Globe. Um, foils and um, the complications with foils and putting them onto offshore boats has been something which has been a problem or was a problem for yacht designers for decades. Um, the benefits of hydrofoils are well understood and have been used. Like when I lived in Hong Kong, we've had the hydrofoils that fly over to Macau have been in operation for, I don't know, like early 90s they were already definitely in play by 96 when i first went to hong kong now they're using a v-foil and v-foils are very interesting because obviously the faster you go the more lift the v-foil creates this is literally just a big foil that's on struts underneath the boat it's shaped like a v and as you're going faster and faster you need less and less of the foil in the water so that you can uh it's going to create enough lift to keep the boat uh, hull out of the water as you hit a wave, more of the foil is uh, suddenly covered by water and creating lift, and that lifts the boat higher. So th the simple thing uh, on a power-driven vessel is that you have your V-foil, you drive it into a wave, and it's self-leveling. Self it, it maps out and flattens out the contours of the sea automatically as just a side effect of its, of its shape. It's kind of a passive system. You do have trim... Um, on the rudders, the rudder at the back has got a T-foil attached to the bottom of it, and that gives you a pitch orientation on the boat that then changes the angle of attack of that foil attached to the forward section of the boat. So foils in that way had been around for a long time. One of the characteristics of foils that makes them a little bit tricky to put onto a sailboat, or did for the longest time, is that they need a certain amount of power adding into them uh, to get the craft lifted up and get it onto the onto the, uh, the the plane or onto the foil essentially, um, but the amount of energy that you have to put in then drops off once it's up and foiling. You have to add a lot of energy. This is like hump you have to get over. But once you're actually up on the foil, you can back off the power if it's a power driven vessel, and then it becomes very very efficient, which is another reason why it's great for these high speed ferries going backs and forwards between Hong Kong and Macau because it's a rough, choppy piece of ocean there, they can map it out just as part of their basic design. But then uh, once they're up on the fall, it's very, very efficient. For a sailboat, having enough constant power available to lift the boat onto the foils and then keep them on the foils was always very, very tricky. The amount of structure that you needed in the boat to be able to um, uh, have a, a boat that had the required strength to 
to to to mount the foils to have enough uh, strength in the hull to hold up the rig that would be able to provide enough power for this the hull that was able to do that job was about nine tons if you look at the uh, imoka 60s from the late 90s like like mine you're looking around the nine thousand kilo mark twenty thousand pounds at that sort of level the amount of foil area that you're likely to put into the water is at a, a really delicate balance where if you put too much foil in the water it's going to create a huge amount of drag if you don't put enough foil in the water you're going to need so much speed to get onto the foil that you're constantly going to be on and off and on and off and on and off the foil because um, the power goes in and then the boat starts to accelerate forward the boat accelerates as fast as and far as it can but then it starts to run ahead of the breeze and then it has to slow back down again the thing that's allowed the foils to really develop is that hulls have got lighter and lighter and therein comes perhaps the problem. How, how did I get involved in this? Um, in 2014 is the first time that you see uh, foils being talked about. And we had uh, DSS already out at that time. DSS is Dynamic Stability System, which is a system divine, designed by Hugh Welburn, the well-known British um, naval architect. And it's a horizontal daggerboard that goes out through an aperture in the hull. Imagine uh, a giant daggerboard which is lying inside your hull with a hole on either side and then you can pull the daggerboard out to go onto one side or you can pull it the other way back into the hull and then out onto the other side of the boat what that means is that as the boat starts to tip over with the breeze the daggerboard is in the water the boat starts to go faster and faster the daggerboard creates a lift and you get your writing moment not from weight and mass in the keel but from a dynamic stability system a dynamic writing uh, force which is created by the board itself now i started to look at that and at that time i was working with derek hatfield and he had um, an open 60 it was active house in the last uh, vlux five oceans race but originally it was um, the boat built by thierry dubois after he rolled in the southern ocean so in the vendee globe and i think it was was it 2000 Oh, it was 96 was his, yeah. So he he rolled his boat in the Southern Ocean, but then because the deck was so flat, the boat wouldn't roll back over again. So when he went back to sea, he got Bernard Nevelt. It was the only open 60 that Bernard Nevelt designed. Um, he got him to design a boat which was like as safe as it could be. Still fast, but as safe as it could be. And what he came up with was a truly unique design and a very rounded shape, lots of uh, curvature on the deck, lots of tumble home and um, a boat which definitely would stand itself back up very, very easily. But it was characterized by the fact it only had one daggerboard. Now we are very used to open 60s having two daggerboards. This one only had one. So I looked at the dynamic stability system. And I thought, well, could we mount that inside the boat? And very quickly, what we realized was that um, open 60s as part of their rules that they're created and, and operate under they're only allowed five appendages underwater so you can have two rudders two dagger boards normally and the keel the question that we had to overcome first was do you consider this horizontal dagger board arrangement with two apertures in the hull do we consider that to be one appendage because it's only ever out on one side or the other or do you consider it to be two appendages because it can come out of two different places on the hull in the end um, through Hugh Welburn's work, the technical committee um, of IMOCA uh, basically decided that DSS was allowed, but that it would um, be two hull apertures. So at that point, we had a bit of a, an issue. Racers want to get an advantage in whatever they're doing, but they don't want to be in search of like, 
Uh, like Jack and the Beanstalk style magic beans. If someone says you could be 20% faster, that sounds awesome. But the reality is it's going to be some amazing like design change. It's going to be some super risky strategy. It's going to be something which puts you in a very precarious position if it doesn't quite work out. If you if you go off on some big flyer that can give you some like massive advantage and it doesn't work, you just end up looking like a fool. If you decide to step back from where the designs of all the other boats are and go in some new direction, yeah, there could be some advantage, but you could end up looking really kind of not so smart when suddenly the, the, the boat is not as quick as it was meant to be and you're behind everybody else that's out on the water. What was the development of this was that suddenly looking at the foiling system that um, Hugh Welburn had come up with, people started to realize that they could um, build the, the foil section into the dagger boards they already had. So suddenly, rather than having a situation where we get rid of the foils, we get rid of the canting keel and we put the DSS system in with a fixed keel, which is how Hugh designed it originally. Um, suddenly we would have a system whereby your foil is modified into a hybrid of a hydrofoil and a daggerboard. And that's where we're at right now. And we have two different sorts of daggerboards that, or yeah, two different sorts of daggerboards, two different sorts of foils that we can see on the boats. We've got the L-shaped ones and we've got the C-shaped ones. And we don't have to go particularly into the, the differences them, except to say that the C-shaped ones are awesome because they can be retracted completely into the hull in rough weather. The issue with some of the L-shaped foils is that they're out there uh, <laughs> and they're out there. Like you, you, you've got to kind of uh, deal with the boat with foils attached to the outside of it when you're in non-foiling weather. The advantages the foils can bring, they're getting better and better. If you look at 2016, when they first went onto the water with these uh, foils, they really only had uh, an advantage between like 100 and... No, maybe more like 110 and 140 true wind angle. So you had to be like on a broad reach and then you could power these things up off you go. That works perfectly well in the Vendée Globe because two thirds of the time you're, you're broad reaching. That's why it's such a quick way to go around the world because you're going with the wind and with the currents and with everything else. The issue comes if you then try to use those boards in more kind of marginal circumstances where the wind is further forward on the beam. The newer boards, the 2020 boards, they've really been working on the foil uh, design. They've been making the hulls as light as possible, and they've been working on the, uh, the, the window in which they can be operable. And now they can actually use the foils up to 90 degrees true wind angle. So at that point, you've got a, a very usable piece of equipment. As I said at the beginning, though, weight was always the issue. And what they've done is they've had to lighten off and lighten off and lighten off the boats to get down to a critical figure, which is just north of 7,000 kilos. Remember, that's just that's about two tons lighter than the boats from 2000. Um, and that light boat is then able to get up on the foils, stay on the foils, and then get some real advantage from what's going on. Now, is it a slam dunk? Well, it's not entirely a slam dunk. Here's why. There's, there's upsides and downsides. Firstly, when you think about a boat that's not on foils, what, what is it then? What it is, is a super cavitating foil operating at the surface. Whenever you're planing on something, whether it be a speedboat or a surfboard or a boat, that, a sailboat that's, uh, that's planing, you are a super cavitating foil. That is to say that pressure um, on the, uh, the active foil uh, uh, surface, and that's to say, you know, obviously when you're a hull on the surface of the water, the, the active foil surface is the underside of your boat, the planing surface of your boat. 
pressure in the that region drops so low that the water essentially boils it doesn't heat up it's just the pressure gets so low that it low that it wants to turn into a gas when it does that it creates this white frothiness all around it which is obviously one of the big keys of uh, of planing that you've got this bubbled water but where does that air come from some of it is being sucked down under the hull it's ventilating it's going underneath the hull cuz it's being sucked under the hull some of it um there has been situations in the past where we've actually uh, introduced air under the hull um, to try and um, create more of this, uh, to, to, to trip the, the supercavitation earlier. That's Those things aren't very popular in sailboats. But uh, the other method that it's uh, done is just that you alter the, the hull configuration so that it induces this low pressure area towards the stern as early as possible. And then the boat starts to ride on a, on a cushion of uh, of of aerated water. And that obviously has a lot less friction than anything else. If your boat can get up on the plane and plane really, really quickly and you're a super cavitating foil operating at the surface, you've got a lot of the benefits of foils without having the structural downsides of the fact that you've got these things sticking out of your boat. What you lack, though, is that you can't just fly your way over the top of these waves. Each angled surface of each wave that you hit has a retarding effect on the boat. So that's where the upside and the downside is. You can have a heavier boat, which is then able to punch its way through head seas, um, has a much more understandable and kind of easily managed hull configuration in that you don't have these things st uh, sticking out the outside of it. And that a lot, a lot of foiling boats have a lot of issues with damage. And actually, we've just got that now in the, um, the Vendee Globe, as it is at the moment. Um, the, the guys that are out in front at the moment is... You've got uh, Ruant, who has had to cut his foil. So Dalin is out there flying along, doing uh, what he needs to do with his, I think he's got L-shaped foils. Meanwhile, Charlie Dalin has had to uh, slow right down and then cut the end of his foil off because it's got damage. Either he's clipped something at sea or it's structurally failed and now suddenly doesn't have that part of the boat available. That's first and second. Who's in third? Uh, Jean Le Cam is in third and he's in a non-foiling boat. I think something that we want to bring up here then at this point is why are the foiling boats so much faster? This is something which comes up all the time with um, with race cars, with race boats, with anything. Those people who have got the absolute best campaign, they've got the money, they've got the time set aside for training, they've got sponsor dollars coming in. They're probably the best in the world anyway at what they're doing. Plus they have huge amounts of time put aside. Plus they've got other great minds putting their input into their uh, campaign. Those people and the campaigns that surround them will always jet forward. And we saw this in the early 2000s where suddenly the Swiss company, Alenghi, was getting, or the Swiss campaign rather, was getting involved uh, in the America's Cup. And Alenghi, suddenly, it was like an arms race. They just poured loads of money in and suddenly started having success. And everyone said, well, you know, is, is this the end of competitive sailing? In a way, kind of, sort of, a little bit, yes. Um, when you start to just throw loads of money into a situation with sailing, you can create some outstanding results. And it's of great sadness to me that a lot of offshore racing, literally from 2000, has started to die off. Now, sponsorships changed. Um, the, the money that's available from this stuff has changed. I think certainly because sailing is trying to all the time, um, in the press certainly, present itself as like the newest, the best, the, as I always say, the white sunglasses, the the seasoned professionals who are multi-million dollars and all the boats are worth millions. 
because of that, there's been a move away from sponsoring the sport by any kind of companies because there's no personal story in it. It's it's a rich person's sport. You need millions of dollars to get involved and be at the top of it. And there's no there's no real opportunity to get involved in anything else. That's one of the reasons I love the Ocean Globe race that's going in 2023. It's a retro race. You can't enter it with a, uh, a, a, a brand new boat. There's, there's no way to get in there and kind of have an arms race. The only arms race is what we're trying to do at Spartan, which is get our round the world team together as early as possible. More news on that soon. Um, get the round the world team together and then train for as long as we can and be focused for as long as we can. But other than that, you can't just chuck money in and get a result. With these offshore boats, if you're at the very front of what's going on, if, you, if you're the best in the world, you've got access to the best money and the best budgets. Of course, you're going to be at the front. Now, is it because you've got foils? Well, Jean Lecam at the moment is proving, no, it's not just because of that. Obviously, there's a speed increase available through using foils, but there's a lot of risk as well in case you break them. Um, I think Jean Lecam keeps that little window open. He's a very experienced, very solid sailor who just doesn't have foils on his boat. That's the choice he's made. I'm not sure that it's budget-based. I think it's he doesn't want them. And he's showing that you can go very, very fast with a boat without them. So I don't know if this is like, I've seen some things which said this is creating a split in the sport. There's those that foil and those that don't. I think for things like the America's Cup, I think going on to foils is exciting because it's at the cutting edge. I think it totally kills the sport for um, anybody who is involved in sailing on, on a day-to-day. Who, who is it that they think is watching the America's Cup when it's all, you know, we've got like bike racing teams embedded inside a boat we've got multi-hulls we've got multi-hulls on uh foils we've got monohulls on foils we've got but what has this got to do with anybody else that goes uh, uh goes sailing at least with nascar you can say well, it's got four wheels and a steering wheel so therefore it's pretty close to what i drive even though i'm not a racer but when you're looking at a boat which has got giant t-shaped foils that drop down on either side like the america's cup boats it's so separated from what we normally do as sailors that I, I wonder if if they want to get back to a point where there's money available for these kind of projects in sailing, they may have to get back to what is the kind of core philosophy of sailing, which is more like monohulls um, and sailing as we recognize it. As they distance themselves from the everyday sailor, I think they distance themselves through from from anything other than the most well, unusual funding options. You know, when you've got something like SoftBank from Japan putting money into sailing to go and do the America's Cup in Bermuda in a foiling multi-hull, does SoftBank actually care about sailing? Like, of course not. Um, I think that teams maybe where you've got like Land Rover involved with the BAR team, I think that Land Rover has got a long uh, uh, history of being involved with things to do with the sea. So I can see there's a long connection there, but a lot of them flit in and flit out of sailing, these big companies. They don't get from it what they want, so they move on. I think that we need to make sure as sailors that um, we, we keep... Uh, we, we keep in mind all the time the fact that, yeah, it's awesome watching the Vendée Globe. And I see there's nearly a million people playing the Vendée Globe uh, virtual um, regatta, which is awesome. But those boats and what they do is a very tiny squeak of section of, of actual sailors. So the split will in sailing will be those that foil and go foiling and then those that don't foil and, uh, and, and don't want to go foiling. Um, 
I think that you may find that foils are particularly good at some areas of sailing and then start to die off in other areas. Certainly, this Vendée Globe might be uh, the, 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 the acid test for it. We've already got one of the leaders has damaged his um, foil, may not be able to go on. Um, we've had other breakages in the fleet already. I think what we want to see is, and that's that go right back to the beginning. When I was talking to Hugh Welbin in 2014, talking to him about can we get foils onto um, uh, Mocha 60s, I said to him at that point, if we can prove that they are um, reliable and that they increase the speed of the boat and that there are you know, a, a good development forwards for the sport, then I think it's something that will stick and it'll become very popular. If on the other hand, they are easily broken, if they're very technical, if they create other issues, then they're not so good. And I think just before we get off this subject, there's, that's worth also noting. For those guys that are out on the water with foils, look at Al, uh, Alex Thompson and the Hugo Boss boat. Unfortunately, we just had the news that he's um, he's not going to be able to continue on with this uh, Vendée Globe, which is um, is terrible news for him and it's for his team. And my, my heart does go out to them. So much goes into these campaigns. But um, one of the design elements of that boat was that everything was inside. And I do wonder with that, uh, obviously, it's a way of staying drier and avoiding fatigue and, and, and kind of looking after the sailor who, at the end of the day, is the most important component on the boat. But the safety thing also, if you're on the deck on a boat which is flying along on foils at 30 knots and then hits a wave and decelerates to 16 knots and then, you know, <laughs> that is going to be some pretty major forces to deal with. The kind of forces that you can't deal with by standing up on your own two feet. It's going to be a dangerous, menacing environment to be in. And for the sailors that have got those foils on the boat, I hope that we don't have any accidents based on that motion. I think that having the boats completely enclosed, pretty much all of them now are like 95% enclosed. Alex's boat was 100%. I think that the, the dangers that come from them being up on the foils and going at that kind of speed. And then the sudden decelerations, it's massive loadings on these already light hulls. It's massive loading on already knife edge technology, keeping these foils um, strong enough that they can bear the loads. But on the actual, the the, the meat and mince of, of, of the person that's on board the boat, um, I think it's very, very hard. So I'm going to watch with great interest to see what's happening with foils. I think that um, it's exciting to to see the sport developing and to be involved in a, a period of time where a leap forward is being made. But I'm very aware of the fact that that leap forward is also ostracizing a lot of the companies and the individuals who could be interested in sailing because they just suddenly see it as being some cutting edge, something or other that they're not particularly up for being involved in. So Joel, I hope that answers uh, some of your question there. <laughs> as always, I just basically start to ramble along. I've got, I've got some notes though. I've got, I've actually got some notes. Oh, the other one was about um, seasickness. Yes, yes. Okay, so quite a few people have written to me about seasickness, and I actually saw a uh, Instagram um, post this morning from uh, a guy called Huey. What is he called? Sailing Huey. He's out of um, out of New, uh, South Africa, I think it was. He was talking about seasickness, and he was talking about his opinion on scopolamine. So. Uh, I actually wrote back to that and said that I didn't uh, didn't agree with what he was saying. He was putting forward a very polarized position on this uh, uh, seasickness medication, scopolamine, and the little patches that go behind your ear that are made from it. Let's talk about seasickness for a little bit because it's certainly something. I have a friend who's very keen to come on board the boat and go sailing with me in 2021. Spartan's getting going again. We've got some news for about that, which I can share with you in a second. But um, her concern is... Um, am I going to get seasick and is this going to be miserable? 
So the first question is, uh, <laughs> you know what the first question is? The first question is, how the hell do I know anything about seasickness? What, what's my background in this to be able to understand and give you some uh, views on it? I don't get seasick. Uh, I, I have been seasick uh, twice that I can remember. One was on a boat that we were delivering from the Bahamas to Fort Lauderdale. I was on watch on the third deck. The boat was rolling like a pig. Uh, we were just coming out, I think it's called the Tongue of the Ocean, where it just come out of Paradise Island and take that left turn towards Miami. The boat was rolling. I felt awful. I said to the person I was on watch with, which was my friend Karen, I said, just can I just sleep for 20 minutes? I just need to reset. She said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I just literally lay on the floor, went to sleep for 20 minutes and woke up feeling fine. The other time was in the channel when I was on one of the clipper boats and I was down below doing a lot of navigation and we were in very rough conditions off the Casquettes, which is a, a tidal a rip that runs around the corner of France there by the uh, Channel Islands. And I felt rough there. I wasn't at, I didn't actually vomit. I don't think I've ever vomited through seasickness, but, um, but I felt really low. So, um, based on those two things, I'm an expert. No, well, obviously there's a bit more to it than that. The thousands of people that I've sailed with is what gives me my, uh, opportunity to talk about this and my observations of them. So, um, Having done kayak, very long distance whitewater and and uh, ocean kayaking uh, trips, like multi-day trips through India and the Himalayas with people getting seasick in kayaks, people getting seasick, like sailing up and down the coast of um, Hong Kong and China, where we used to do ocean kayaking expeditions. Obviously, people on boats, but I used to do expeditions on 36-foot open boats, and people would be on there, you know, retching their guts out, and then different kind of boats. So... Let's let's see what I can give you, which is useful about seasickness. The first thing is that it's mental. This is not exactly a revelation for anybody, but what exactly do we mean by that? The fact of the matter is, you know, when you've got seasickness, you're not bleeding, you're not broken, you're not diseased. There's nothing lacerated or, 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 or anything which is physical, which is happening to you that you can point at and say, this is the center of my problem. Nothing. So you feel ill. Okay, fine. Well, there's lots of, are you being food poisoned? You're not being food poisoned. Uh, uh, have you got some like gastrointestinal bug which is inside you? No, nothing like that. It's just you're feeling fine. Now you're not feeling fine. So the raw fact of the matter is that it's coming from inside you. Now, any woman who's had morning sickness will say, yeah, but that would make it any better. I, I totally and utterly get it. I totally and utterly get it. But what can we do about that, having isolated the fact that it is something that's coming from inside? Well, why? Why are we feeling sick? Why are we feeling nauseous? What seems to be the medical knowledge on this? It's a little bit thin on the ground. I've had lots and lots of medics on the boat over many, many years, as you can imagine. And um, they have backed up my... Uh, uh, personal investigation <laughs> of this as a freelance uh, uh, scientist on this, you know, amateur freelance. Um, what I see is that the people are getting uh, two very different inputs. The input from your middle ear, your cochlea, which deals with balance, is saying, I am moving. Meanwhile, the eyes, which remember are literally part of your brain. They are not something that's connected to your brain. They are actually like bits of your brain. They are receiving a very strong input saying I'm not moving. Now, how can that be? If you're sat downstairs in a boat in the galley and you're rocking and rolling with the boat, the galley around you is rocking and rolling with you. There's no change apart from a little bit of your imbalance in that situation. There's no change between 
you and your surroundings. If you're talking to somebody on the deck or if you're reading a book or if you're doing anything where you're concentrating on something um, that's inside the boat, that means that thing is moving with the boat. And therefore, the message from the cochlea saying, I am moving, is completely and utterly being uh, uh, contrasted against the message from the eyes that says, I'm not moving. So the brain <laughs> goes like, what is going on here? The brain's response to this seems to be to believe that it's being poisoned. So what it chooses to do at this point is to empty the stomach. It thinks I must be being poisoned. I've got to empty the stomach. So our, our uh, methodology here has to be to work out how can we solve the dissociation between these two things, the message from the cochlea and the message from the eyes. One thing which people always talk about is look at the horizon. They always say, look at the horizon, look at the horizon, and you'll feel better. I don't think looking at the horizon is going to make you feel better unless you realize why you're looking at the horizon. Like for me personally, you're looking at the horizon because the horizon is the only thing that is moving relative to the boat in the same fashion that your cochlea is reporting. So if you're looking out at the horizon and don't stand right on the side of the boat looking at the horizon, that ain't going to do anything. You need to sit in the boat, like, I mean, in the cockpit of the boat, that's probably the safest place in this thing, situation, and see the, the guide wires or the, 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 the top of the combing of the boat or the boom or watch some part of the boat moving relative to the horizon. And then that message that's inside your head from your cochlea will line up with what you're seeing. If you're just looking at the horizon, then you're not going to feel any better because the horizon is still going to basically look like it's not moving. So get something that looks like how your balance uh, receptors are telling you you are feeling, and then that should help. Another way you can do it is close your eyes the, and then focus on the fact that you're moving. What I do, if I do feel, I'm saying I've never been seasick, but I don't, don't get me wrong, I do feel nauseous sometimes. Like it, you certainly if you're getting tossed around all over the place, it ain't fun for anybody. Um, I lie down, I have my feet going forward, which we always do in race boats because we don't want to be in a situation where suddenly um, the boat stops harshly on the back of a wave or God help us actually hit something and you come sliding off your bunk head first, you break your neck. So you're always feet first. So I imagine myself with my eyes closed in my bunk, like being posted along over the surface of the water, feet first, and I can feel, oh, up goes the boat, up, up I go over the waves, and then up, down goes the boat, down I go over the waves, and I rock to the left and rock to right. And part of that is that you start to feel the motion of the boat. These waves that are coming in, the boat's reacting to, they're very, very regular. And whether you're going upwind or downwind or whatever it is, there is some kind of pattern to it. And once you can internalize that pattern somewhat and you can start to even expect it a little bit it takes the victim element out of it and i think that's something that i noticed as an external observer of people that are seasick it's very easy to get into this feeling where you feel very very morbid yeah um it's it's interesting i i think some people feel that the some people's idea is that the way they feel is like something that they're not in control of a lot of the way that you feel every day is based on very simple things. It's based on hormones. It's based on sugar levels, oxygen levels, calm dark side levels. It's based on dopamine levels. Have you or have you not exercised? It's based on background stress and that kind of stuff. These are things that you can actually somewhat take control of. And if you're having a bad day and things seem to be going wrong, take a big step back and like 
am I breathing right? Am I, uh, am I, have I got good nutrition going on here? Am I hydrated? Am I stressed about something I'm not putting my finger on? You can adjust the way that you feel. Um, and I guess I say that from having been in a situation where I've been on my own a lot and I'm absolutely subject to my, uh, uh, the, uh, the only other crew member that's on board is 100% responsible for the mood of, and the atmosphere of what's going on. And I am that other crew member, if you see what I'm saying. So if I'm having a bad day, I've only got myself to blame and I have to try and modify the behavior of that crew member to, to make life on board happier. That means I've got to modify my own feelings to, to make things better. So what I recognize with uh, seasickness is that a bit like if you ever heard if people get stung by bees, I've twice attended to people that have got, gone into anaphylactic shock and neither time were there, were there, was their throat constricted in the classic anaphylactic reaction that we think of. On both occasions, what they had is an intense feeling of morbidity. They had an intense feeling that they were going to die. Chemically, they were being driven to feel that way by something in their brain that was basically making them feeling like this is the end, right? And I think what I observe in people that are seasick is because they're just getting thrashed around, they don't know what to do about it. If they succumb to that that chemical imposition that they're under that of like, this is very bad, you are feeling awful. If they succumb to that, you're, you're all but lost. You feel awful, you, you can't find a way out of it. There's, there's nothing to be done apart from lie there and feel the victim, be the victim, act like the victim and, and get the outcome that comes from that. I think if you can try and fight your way out from underneath feeling like a victim with it, you can be more successful. Um, go and do something like steering the boat. Steering the boat is something which always seems to help people. Firstly, it distracts you. It distracts the brain from thinking expressly about this issue it's got between these different signals. And because you're looking forward, you're looking down the boat and you're looking at both the boat and the horizon. And that seems to, but also you're controlling the boat, which takes the, the victim element out of it. You're doing something. The other thing I'd say with um, seasickness is that it seems to be it, often the onset is at the beginning. If you think you're going to be seasick, then you are going to be seasick. It's like it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Attention starts to come into your tummy. Like, oh my God, here we go. This is what's going to, I'm going to be ill. I'm going to be ill. I was ill last time. I'm going to be ill the next time. When that tension starts in your gut, maybe if you tense your stomach muscles up now, just tense your stomach muscles up now and, and hold it. I, I'm just going to keep talking. You just got to keep your stomach muscles tense. How long do you think you're gonna to have to keep your stomach muscles tense until you start to feel kind of a little bit sore around the tummy and a little bit ill, all right? Being in a situation where you are perpetually nervous about getting ill and you're having to tense your body because of the motion of the boat causes you to tense up your stomach muscles. Now we gotta do something else to simulate what's going on when people start getting seasick. They get nervous, they get a little bit afraid, they got a tension in the gut, and no one's talking to about seasickness and thinking, oh, here we go again. And they start to breathe really shallowly. I always see this. They start to breathe shallowly. And I say to people before we go sailing, imagine that you're just breathing through a drinking straw. Like I just give you a drinking straw. Obviously, it wouldn't be a plastic one because we're in a nice, new, you know, healthy, happy world now. But give you a paper drinking straw or your metal one. And you're breathing through that. How long until you start to feel ill? Breathing through a drinking straw, like one minute, five minutes an hour. I think anybody by the end of an hour, if you tense your stomach muscles and breathe through a drinking straw for an hour, you're going to feel sick. You're going to start to feel quite nauseous and quite down on yourself. So how can we deal with that? The, the Getting the victim element out of it, standing up, talking to people if you can, uh, feeling positive like you're going to get through it. All you've got to move towards is doing something 
that helps you. You are not broken. You are not bleeding. You are not diseased. It's something that your brain is incorrectly choosing for you because it's trying to help you out. Just give it some slack. All right, no problem. I'm going to feel a bit sick. Fine. But then I'm going to get through it. And a positive mindset can really help you get through it. Um, the last thing I'd add is that as crew dealing with someone who's seasick, you can do a lot to help them. Firstly, you know, make sure they've got fluids, make sure they're getting talked to, make sure that they're in a situation where they are um, well braced and low down in the boat. If you're like half lying over the side deck, um, you know, on a boat that's heavily heeled over, freaking out because you, you're puking over the side of the boat, being on the leeward side down there and trying to brace yourself can end up, again, you feel very, very exposed, very, very susceptible to whatever's going on. And you can really start to feel very, very crappy. You know, it's hard enough just sitting on the seats on the leeward side of a boat and then trying to lean into the boat when the boat goes down to leeward and then trying to lean backwards when the boat comes up to where it's like, it's all back to front. You want to be on the high side if you can, but if you're sick, you don't want to be there. So get them comfortable, make sure they got fluids, you'll see that they start to go kind of greenish, greenish color, but then they start to yawn a lot. And it's not yawning because they're, you know, anything other than the fact their body needs oxygen because they're breathing really shallowly. So say to them, breathe, 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 breathe. I find that something like Frosties, it's very dry. You know, the cereal Frosties with the, with the sugar on it? It's very dry. It's sweet. It doesn't really add any bulk to the stomach. And you can just nibble something like that with a nibble of a corner of a cracker. Get the sugars in. Your body is working hard. You're bracing yourself with all the motion. You're maybe not used to it. You're physically burning sugars and you need to put something in there. So uh, what else can we add to that? If you're down below, if you have to be down below, you can just basically unfocus your eyes. Don't get fully focused in on some little job on inside a boat if you're not used to it. Just let your eyes go slightly unfocused. And if you haven't got, if you've got glasses, just don't put your glasses on. You won't be getting such a strong input from your eyes. And so it does seem to lower somewhat the um, the brain's uh, need to deal with this uh, this dissimilarity between the messages it's getting. The cochlea is very clearly saying, hey, I'm moving. But if the eyes are slightly fuzzy and, and unfocused, it seems to be that the brain's like, yeah, OK, well, I'll, you know, we'll get through. So. The last thing for 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 crew is that um, if someone then needs to go down and go to their bunk or whatever, you know they need to be clipped on the entire time they're in the cockpit. If you're sick, you've got to be clipped on because you may not be in a situation once you get very very sick to actually secure yourself for much longer. But for those people who are on the boat with them, get their bunk ready, get a bucket next to it, get tissues, get some water, get all that, and then be there at the bottom of the companionway. And as they can start taking their, their gear off on deck, maybe if that's, you know, accessible past their life jacket and everything. But they can dump all that gear and be in bed in a hot sack and lying down, eyes closed, being posted across the waves. is so much better than just saying to someone, well, if you're sick, go down below. And then they're trying to take their jacket off and they're falling over and it's just a disaster zone. So um, I, would, I would say with seasickness, keep positive, recognize what's happening with you, keep breathing, keep sugars and oxygen going. Try and be proactive in what you're doing around you. Recognize where this issue is coming from and try and make sure you see the horizon moving relative to the boat and just keep go at it like it's something that you need to problem solve your way around. Um, don't allow that victim element to slip in there. And in terms of medication, as this chap on Instagram was saying, you know, you got to check all these things out. Scopalamine has worked for many, many people. It's a little patch. You put it behind your ear. I would say start with a half first and then see if it works for you um if you touch the patch don't touch your eyes afterwards it makes your eyes um dilate very very badly you can end up with a cracking headache because you're getting photosensitive because your 
eyeballs have dilated because the scopolamine was on your fingers from the patch. So do what you got to do with the patch um, and then wash your hands very carefully afterwards. Um, half a patch is a good place to start from. And then uh, a full patch, if that seems to be uh, the direction you're going. For a lot of people, half a patch is fine. You can tape it on there with a little bit of surgical tape if you have an issue with keeping it stuck on your skin. That's one thing. Other people would use Stugeron, which is not very available in North America. In North America, it's maybe more gravel or something like that. What all these things are doing is they are suppressing the output from your cochlea, that balanced sensory of your brain. They're suppressing its output and um, making the brain less aware of movement and therefore easing off the, uh, the, the, the effect on you. So try medication, but try it before you go anywhere. You may find things like Stugeron make your mouth very, very dry. They can give you very weird dreams and they can make you um, f feel dehydrated. Um, but you know, if it gets you over that hummock, I guess the last thing I would say is that a lot of professional sailors get very seasick. Don't think for a second that this is like, oh, that's it, I can't do sailing because of seasickness. Work out something that works for you, a management method for it, and then go sailing anyway. There's so many more benefits to being out in the water. There's so many beautiful things to see and great friendships to develop and skills to, 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 to bring into your life that, as we've learned, could even be useful when you're changing a tire. Go for that and just the, the seasickness thing. I'll say this, guys are much worse at being seasick than, than women. Um, as, as is so many things like we know what man flu is, right. And the fact that when men get sick, they get way worse, definitely plays out in, uh, in seasickness. Like, uh, just take it from me, 300,000 miles in and pretty much all of it's been sail training. The girls are definitely much better at dealing with this. So, um, that's me on seasickness. And again, if anybody's got any, uh, great things that they want to add into that, just send them over and we can include it in, um, this uh, questions and tangents. Uh, actually, I answered a couple of questions there and stayed pretty much like I was talking about the same thing, right? I was that was almost, almost like I knew what was going on. Okay, um, let's have a quick chat about what uh, uh, was going on with the Ocean Globe race. Since I last talked to you about this and introduced the idea, we're going to do it. We have already filled half of the available positions for round the world crew, which I find completely amazing. It's um, we're going to be taking fourteen people on the boat. And uh, the minimum number of round the welders that we need to have to uh, that I want to have is is six. So there's going to be 14 people. It's a pay to play um, model, basically. That's what we know is going on here. You pay your money. It takes your trip around the world. Um, half of those around the world positions, we've already got people signing contracts. That's that is amazingly exciting for me. And that's the only arms race that will be available in the Ocean Globe race. Um, if we're training earlier, if we get to know the boat earlier, if the boat gets um, optimized to what the best it can possibly be, then we have a really, really good chance of a very competitive entry. In this. And looking at the rest of the race, all the other divisions, they're all filling up like fast, fast, fast. We've got 30 odd boats going into this race. I think personally, one of the bits I'm looking forward to the most is the fact that um, we're going to have some amazing boats alongside the dock. I know Tracy Edwards is involved in her boat Maiden. Andy Shell's bringing Iceborne on this one. They're all boats which historically have been connected to the Whitbread and Volvo races. There's Maxis, there's Volvo 60s, there's Whitbread 60s, there's um, boats that were in the original, original race back in, what was that, 79? Um, being on the dock around this is going to be awesome. So I'm personally looking forward to that. On board our boat, we know that Challenger... Um, has got probably the least mileage of any 
uh, Volvo 60 or Whitbread 60 uh, out there. Volvo 60 and Whitbread 60 is the same boat. They're Kevlar. It's the same box rule. The only difference is that the Volvo 60s had carbon fiber masts. Um, Challenger has a, uh, a aluminum spar, but um, doesn't really seem to make that much of a difference, I've got to say. And some of the highest speeds ever seen by these boats were still the aluminum masted Whitbread 60s. So She's got very, very low mileage. She's got a brand new keel on, brand new keel bolts. She had an ultrasound test at the end of 2019. We cracked a frame, we cracked two frames going through the uh, top of Sicily um, in the, um, what was that? The Middle Sea race. Um, cracking frames on a boat, not awesome, but it's also these race boats are, you know, on the edge. I think what we identify was the fact that we're going to make a lot uh, more material in the turn so our, uh, we've got quite a flat deck and quite a curved hull as you can imagine like most boats and the uh, frames um, had a very tight turn in amongst the, that corner bit is called the car line like where the deck meets the the hull um, and that area where the bulkheads were turning there the style from the late 90s um, i think we've improved that now obviously we're, we're 20 25 years later on from where this boat was designed and we want to see more meat in that area um, so those uh, frames have been replaced and um I think she's going to be great for this. You know, it was a very, very competitive uh, campaign when it was put together first. She was America's challenge. And the chap, uh, Dr. Neil Barth, who put together this fantastic campaign uh, on behalf of the U.S., he bought the winning boat from the previous uh, race, uh, winning uh, uh, Whitbread 60, which was Yamaha. He bought that. He contracted with the team and he had, uh, you know, a full amount of time to, to get a boat that was as optimized as possible. This boat, though, did not complete the entire race around the world because the uh, agent who had been helping to get the sponsorship money together stole the money. So they, they set off from the UK. They got to Cape Town. And when they got there, there was no other money. There was no quick way of getting money. So that was just it. So um, the boat that we now know as Challenger, which was America's challenge at that time, she got shipped back to California. She got somewhat optimized for... Um, the light airs of California, including having 700 kilos taken out of a keel, which is now going back in. Um, and she became uh, a boat that basically was alongside the entire time. I think she did the Transpac in 2001. She did the Newport Ensenada race. And other than that, she didn't move at all. So when we found her, she'd basically not moved for 14, 15 years, been looked after by the person that had built her, but nothing else had happened. So she is as tight as a drum and ready to go sailing, as you can imagine. The brand new keel that's on there is, I think, a fantastic development. It makes me feel very happy about the fact that the the boat is in A1 condition to take on going around the world. Um, well, for her first time, but going this this Whitbread race, uh, kind of restarting in this new format. Um, I think she's I think she's a very worthy contender for 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 what's going on and. Um, I'm excited to to see how that all develops. We're looking literally to fill all the available berths um, by January the 1st. Uh, so there'll be a minimum of six round the welders. There'll be two paid crew on board who are the professionals that are going to lead what's going on. And that will leave then another uh, six places available on each leg for people that just want to join one leg or two legs or whatever you want to do, but just join an individual part of it. So we've already signed up some people to do the first leg. We've already signed up some people to do the last leg. And I actually have a couple of uh, bits of info here in front of you, just so you know. This is going to be happening in 2023. And basically around September 10th, 2023, the boat will be leaving 
from Europe. They're still working out the route. This is quite a long way off. It's quite likely to be Southampton. Could be Saab Delon. Could be, could be, I don't know, Marseille, La Rochelle. Like somewhere where sailing is loved and a beautiful place to depart from. Uh, we've seen now around the world races that start from inside the Mediterranean, uh, like the Globe 40 race, like the Volvo race. So something in the south of France might be possible. But leaving from Europe around the 10th of September 2023, and the first leg will be um, uh, going take, taking us down to Cape Town, a classic stop-off point um, for these kind of races. And it'll probably take about 30, 35 days to get there. Uh, so that gets us in for um, the uh, end of... Uh, September and the early part of November. Then there'll be some time in port and we'll be getting off then from uh, Cape Town and heading to Auckland in New Zealand, um, a classic Southern Ocean leg down. Uh, they're going to keep us, of course, uh, above the uh, Marion and Prince Edward Islands and above uh, the Isle of Croisette and the Kogulian Islands. But then they're going to take us through um, the Bass Strait between Sydney and Tasmania and there's a, perhaps an opportunity there I think as they develop their plan with this race to maybe call into Sydney and then do a sprint leg from Sydney to Auckland after Auckland they'll be departing there on the well it says here the 31st of December but again all of this is uh, subject to change unless there's some giant historical traditional reason why you have to leave on New Year's Eve to set off around the world I'd be thinking maybe like the 2nd of January <laughs> would be a lot more sensible. I'm sure Don McIntyre that's uh, putting this all together is uh, available for comment on this. But um, yeah, if we are leaving there uh, around the beginning of uh, January, uh, we'll be then heading up. And at the moment, it looks like they've got us going into um, Rio. Uh, again, I guess that's up for a little bit of debate. Um, it's a long leg to go from Auckland to uh, Rio. Um, maybe Punta del Este in Uruguay. But either of those is a fantastic option. The one great thing about Punta del Este is that it's a smaller venue. And um, when these boats turn up, it makes a huge to-do in a small town. You really feel like you're involved in something. If you bring all these boats into one of the marinas in Rio, Rio is not going to notice this. It's, people always want to go to New York. Oh, we go to New York. We'll take our thing there. New York doesn't notice you and your boat or it doesn't notice you and your race. There's no point. Go somewhere where you're going to be noticed. So... Either of those, though, uh, I've been to both, and they're both excellent. Um, and then the final leg will be leaving from South America, wherever it be, Punta, or from uh, from Rio, and it'll be heading back up to a European port, whichever they decide upon, um, at the end of uh, sorry, at the middle of April. So we set off on first leg, tenth of September, twenty twenty three. Second leg is November, twenty twenty three. Fourth leg from. Uh, New Zealand around Cape Horn is December or early January of 2024. And then the last leg out of South America, March 10th, back up to Europe. So if something like that seems interesting to you, it'd be about a month at sea. And what we've decided to do is um, just take the overall cost, which it, the overall cost of going around the world is about 63,000 euros. We basically took how much it is to do the Clipper race. We converted it into euros. And that's because we are not sure what's going to happen with the pound with Brexit. So we converted it into a stable currency, which is European ones. At the time that we converted it, it was just under, slightly under 63,000 euros. And we realized that that figure is then easy to divide into the three years that are ahead of us now. If you're making payments in 2021, 2022, and 2023, you can divide those payments up and understand clearly uh, what this is going to cost. For those that are going to do the legs, all we've done is taken that number and divided it by four. I didn't want to make it that we're like kind of 
trying to profiteer out of people just doing one leg. It, it is just, if you're sitting on the side rail where someone's going all around the world, you're paying the same money. It's just, you're only doing that one bit of it. Um, the difference will be for the round the worlders, um, they're going to get two sets of Halley Hansen gear and two Timo backtoe life jackets. And that is because I want to give you a bag of stuff right at the beginning. This is a huge commitment for you and for us. We want to be on the same page. Here's your fully branded Halley Hansen and Timo gear. You're going to have that at the beginning of the first three years. And then when we go and do the round the world race, there'll be another set of gear waiting for you then. For those that are doing the legs, you'll get um, discount codes, which give you access to getting the Timo stuff and the Heli Hansen stuff at great prices, but we're not going to add that in. Your level of commitment to this is slightly different from someone that's putting you know, the cost of an expensive car into it. Um, so the training will be, uh, for those who are going around the world, uh, Spartan will provide four weeks of training uh, each year going up to this. So four weeks in 2020 one four weeks in 2022 and four weeks going up to the start in 2023 for those who are doing an individual leg we will provide two weeks of training in each of those years so the difference is not in like how much is being paid out if you want to go and do more training and you're only coming on board for one leg that's fine just we can sort you out and sort some other training out but you're going to pay on top of that um, but that's a choice. It's not going to be mandated in. The reality of doing this kind of yacht race is that those who are going around the world have to conserve their energy in a different way than those who are on board for a leg. Um, we are already under rules from the race conveners that there's going to be older people and younger people on board the boat. Um, they want to see a balanced male, female crew, which I'm really excited about. That's something I really want to see happen in sailing. Um, but Though if somebody is going to be putting extra effort in for something, it's probably going to be one of the leggers, as we call it, one of the leggers putting that extra effort in. It has to be that way because six of the people who are on board there are going all the way around. They've got to keep their energy. They've got to be the brains trust that keep things going. Those that are coming on board, it's going to be an intense experience that lasts about a month. You get involved in every part of it and just take a little bit of load off those round the worlders. And that's where the division is. I've seen on boats, uh, round the world boats before, where round the worlders and uh, leggers is like uh, two different like groups on board the boat. Like there's some kind of hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. The people that are on board the boat for a longer period of time, they're going to know more about the technicalities of the boat. Those who are jumping on board for a short period, they bring their energy, they bring their vigor, and we're going to burn them out a little bit, give them the, all the experience that they could possibly want so that we save that from the round the worlders. So that's basically how that's going at the moment. Um, Say so Uptake has been very, very good on that. I'm just building the website pages now. Um, Sitska, my business partner in these things who runs Sail Race Crew, she will be doing all the admin, all the finances, everything with this. So she's a, her company is dedicated to doing that side of it. So um, she, she knows like, you've got to get the web page started before you tell people about it. I'm like, look, don't worry about it. They're sailors, they'll get it. We know what we're doing. We're going around the world. It's happening uh, in the future time. I'll put some web pages together. Have a look at the Ocean Globe Race yourself online. Have a look at their website. Have a look at the pre-notice of race that they've put up. Get a feel for if that's what you want to do. Um, and then get in contact. Get in contact with Sitzka via the number on the website. Get in contact with me uh, at info at Spartan Ocean Racing. Um, and uh, let's talk it through. But it's, I think it's going to be one of the best around the world events that we've seen in a number of years because it's going to be boats of all different sorts with all different sorts of categories, all sorts of different people getting involved. And it does not allow for that arms race thing that we talked about where it's just, oh, well, here comes a boat that's had 10 million spent on it. I wonder if it's going to win. Well, yeah, I guess it's going to win. This is getting back to 
the early days of uh, this stuff, the, the, the whip bread as was in the 70s, 80s and early 90s um, of getting out there and uh, it being a Corinthian act, an adventurer's act and a, uh, a personal development act to get onto the water and experience what the ocean has to offer. So that's the news on the, uh, on the stuff that Spartan's doing in 2023. Okay, and the last section here, I'm just going to have a look at uh, like how, how the podcast is doing. You're listening to me. You're wondering, like, am I the only one? It seems not. <laughs> it seems not. So we're actually doing okay. In terms of new podcasts, we're, we're, we're building slowly here. Um, I need your help to do this, though. So if you uh, go and write a review or leave comments or put likes and things like that, which you can do when you're listening to podcasts, um, that really helps the algorithm on these different podcasts. Um, databases and platforms understand that people are engaging in the content and, and like what's going on. For my part, I'm going to be putting out more stuff. I talked to some friends and they're like, well, you only have to do one a week. Um, you, you can do that. But if, if, if we say we get like five or 600 people listening to the podcast, um, that seems to be roughly the numbers that we're doing at the moment. Uh, if I put more stuff out and more people listening, it means there's more content for you, but also again, that the algorithm checks what's going on and starts to uh, promote the, the podcast and all the different places where people listen to podcasts. Why do I need to do that? I need to do it because, um, as you can imagine, uh, making the podcast takes up a lot of time. I've actually got a new app which I'm using called Done, which I absolutely love. I pay 35 bucks because I love it so much. And uh, I'm able to divide things up into categories and then set targets for how many um, hours I do per week on these different things. I said to it that I want to put 14 hours into the podcast per week. Uh, I'm up to 18 hours. So uh, why do we need to get the podcast to be more successful? Because I need to have a really good reason to do this, to say to Sitzka, no, I'm not actually doing uh, all the stuff that you're asking me to do right now because I'm talking into a microphone. I need that to be something that I, I love doing it. I've got no problem at all doing it. But um, the, the, the more further afield that it's listened to and the more people get involved with it, the more successful it gets. Um, and then there's a way of me actually getting some return out of it. I can't just take half my working week and plow it into something that has no return. So um, it's developing, it's building, you're going to get a lot more content. Um, tell people that you're listening to it. If you like it, uh, share it with people at the Yacht Club or online or whatever it is. And uh, very quickly, you know how these things go. It'll start to spread. And then um, I don't no question each week as to I've got to say, I get up excited to make the podcast. It's still very weird for me. Uh, this morning, I probably had six or seven starts trying to get going with this. I talked for a couple of minutes, then my tongue gets tired and I don't know what I'm doing. And I realize don't get caught up with like analysis paralysis, particularly not for this one, questions and tangents. I'm just talking to you guys. I'm just send me a question and I'll answer it. Oh, you know what? There is one other question I want to answer. Um, Rob sent me uh, that wonderful email about um, his his life and going to meet his daughter and the car and all that stuff. But he'd sent me one previously, which um, I noticed here. I did the review on the Timo life jacket, the back toe life jacket. And Rob points out to me, it's not Department of Transport or U.S. Coast Guard approved. Now, I talked to Lauren at uh, Timo. That is something that they're working on at the moment. And they want to get a product which can be sold in every different territory it, there's, there's quite a lot of stipulations in every different country and trying to get a compromised product that does everything they want it to do, does it safely, does it well, is challenging. They are a very new company. They are, they're not Spinlock or Mustang. They're a very new company. It's her and her brother, Oscar. They're making this happen with a lot of um, goodwill behind them and people that believe in this product, myself being one of them. Um, but at the moment, it's not Department of Transport tested in Canada or in uh 
in the, in the US uh, regions. How do we deal with that? It's super simple. You go to West Marine in your car. You go and buy one of those cheap, crappy boxes of, um, of, of life jackets that's got a nice zip closure around it, and you put that inside a locker. The benefit is they're all Department of Transport um, tested. They are foam-filled life jackets, which are available for your use at any time. They're available for guest use. They're available in the event of an emergency and having more life jackets on board the boat. This is not something you scrimp on. This is not like I'm going to get one life jacket and that's it. For the cost of, you know, maybe a hundred bucks, you can get like literally eight of them in one of those packages and just stick it in the lazarette and that's it. But if you ever need it, it's right there and it can be on the water with you as you need to. That's on board your boat. Now your boat's covered for the Department of Transport stuff. Your Timo backtow life jacket is what you're going to wear from day to day, and it's going to be the one that actually keeps you safe in the event of going over and being towed alongside the boat or getting separated from the boat or all those good things we talked about in that podcast. So um, don't feel that, oh, well, I'm just going to go buy one life jacket and it has to do everything. To get access to this technology at this early, early point in its development, we have to make a little compromise. The compromise is that uh, we have these other life jackets on board. And that's what we have on Challenger. We use only back tow life jackets, but then we have 18 other life jackets. Now it's a big boat, so we can just tuck them away down the back. And if anybody was ever to come on board and, hey, what's the life jackets are you using? You can say, well, here's our Department of Transport ones, and here's these others. There's never going to be a bit where having extra life jackets is a problem. So I hope that helps you out there, um, Rob. Um, very well, uh, uh, very, very fine point, very well made and very important. Um, until that life jacket can get in front of the U.S. Coast Guard and be okayed before it can get in front of Transport Canada and be okayed. Let's take advantage of its many and obvious benefits, uh, and we just do that by just getting one of those packs of life jackets from West Marine or whoever's your local chandler. Yeah. And for uh, all the people that wrote and said, um, thanks very much for enjoying the podcast, thank you. Uh, it literally bounces me out of bed to, to know that you guys are listening. Um, the further we can spread this further field and spread a message of enjoying sailing and uh, being safe on the water, the better for all. So what's going to happen next? Well, say I'm, I've got more stuff. I've got a podcast I've recorded, which is a review of the Heli Hansen uh, gear, which I got sent. Heli Hansen now a sponsor. They were sponsoring me for the Westabout uh, circumnavigation. Remember, we've got a third of the money already for the rig, which is the last part of the boat that needs to be fixed up before I can go around the world. Um, Spartan now is getting going again. We're selling the Ocean Globe race. We're also selling this uh, loop, which goes up from, we're going to do the Fastnet race. Then we're going to leave and go to Norway. We're going to the Faroe Islands. We're going to Iceland. We're going to Greenland. And then we're going back to Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. That's happening in the summer of 2021. Have a look on the website, Spartan Ocean Racing, if you're interested in going on that. But whilst that stuff is all happening, obviously income is starting again for Spartan. I had no income at all from uh, literally January of this year. So it's been a very, very difficult year, but we're making our way through it. But Spartan will be able to pay one third of the uh, cost of the rigging for uh, the Pride of Nova Scotia. So we are definitely going sailing next November west around the world. I do have something to add to that, which I, Rob is still here with me now, helping me with the boat. And we were we're doing the Vendee Globe uh, uh, virtual regatta, and we both noted something. My boat, with the speed it has, would be on the race course with the Vendee Globe in roughly the same position that Pip Hare is in. So she has a boat which is the same era as my boat. It's a non-foiling boat. Um, she started off with the rest of the pack. And because of the limitations of her boat, 
and she's pretty skillful with it. She knows what she's doing. That boat and those boats in general right now, they are only just passing, uh, you know, like the latitude of, of, of Rio and the lower stretches of Brazil and making their way down to Uruguay, maybe Uruguay by now. But they, um, they have got a very, very uh, big gap between them and 1,800 miles to the front of the Vendée Globe. From where Pip Hare is at right now, I could not have made it to Cape Horn in my boat with the weather patterns that have prevailed this year. So we were looking to do the West around the world solo nonstop record. I would have started from um, Falmouth, a line between France and uh, the UK, just around Falmouth would have been my start point. I'd have set off at pretty much the same time as the Vendée Globe boats. And I know now from looking at the weather, from playing the virtual regatta game, that I would not have been able to make it to Cape Horn in 30 days, which was my... Um, my desire and necessary for me to beat that uh, record. So um, we weren't able to go this year. It seems that actually we dodged a bullet because I would have been now um, probably, I don't know, two weeks off Cape Horn already knowing that I was behind on a possible record attempt and that it was unlikely I was going to claim the record. So maybe there's a benefit of waiting, but the West Around trip is still happening next year. The money is being brought in by Spartan and um, for that trip, I've been sponsored by Heli Hansen, and they've sent me their latest uh, iGear, it's called, the A-E-G-I-R, that A-Gear equipment of theirs. Um, I've been wearing it a lot. Uh, if you want to know if your sailing gear is actually going to be any use on the boat, you go and do gardening in it. If you didn't know this, this is very true. <laughs> so at the moment, I can't really go sailing, right? There's uh, we've uh, The boat is sitting here, but it needs new rigging on it. So I wanted to test the gear. The only thing like people say to me what's your fitness regimen for going and doing the sailing i garden now i have like well i guess there's like three acres here um and the people that lived here before us lived here for 50 years and made an incredible garden out of an acre and a half of it so working on that cutting tree limbs hauling things across the garden if there's one activity which i uh, think is exactly the same as sailing it's that kind of heavy gardening suddenly you're involved in like cutting a little tree down and you're like super, super sweaty for a second. And then you spend like, I don't know, an hour walking backwards and forwards, like dragging stuff around, which doesn't really that hard on you at all. If you've got moisture up against your skin, you're getting cold and nasty and horrible. So to me, it's very similar. Plus I'm out there in the rain. Plus I'm having to be dexterous with my hands and keep my cuffs out of the way. And how can I move? And a lot of it's very similar. So via <laughs> the platform of gardening, <laughs> I have got a gear review of the A gear from Halle Hansen. This would be, I will go on the water, of course, and do more to do with it. But for the purposes of the podcast, which is the first thing you're going to hear about it, um, it's my experiences wearing it, doing the gardening. Don't worry. I've got enough experience of being on a boat to know about like the, the, the rest of how it will go on a boat. So um, we've got that gear review coming up. We've got the next section of uh, Slocum's uh, book, Sailing Alone Around the World. I've got lots of really wonderful feedback from the second one of those I did, chapters three and four. That was very difficult for me to, to do. A lot of editing required because I get myself quite choked up. And, and thanks to people like um, that Rob that wrote to me who said that, you know, me taking a risk and promote and not promoting and presenting my feelings on the subject uh, somewhat inspired him to send me the lovely long email that he did. Uh, he hasn't done that kind of uh, creative stuff in a while. And I guess I kind of kicked him into gear for that. So um, the book continues, obviously, though, there's a lot more going on there. and There's a lot more to be gained from it. So for those who haven't listened, uh, I think it's podcast 23 and 25. We're reading Joshua Slocum's book and uh, I read it to begin with um, and then uh, I do a commentary afterwards, which is my commentary as someone that's 
been in those situations. The last one was actually, uh, I was on board my Open 60, the Pride of Nova Scotia, talking about what it's like to be on a boat and be ill and, and, uh, and, and how that part of the boat book spoke to me because I've been in that situation previously. So uh, we'll be reading the next part of Slocum's book. Um, the next one I'm going to do, which is a fact-based one, is about sleep. Again, something I've been asked about a lot. Polyphasic sleeping, sleep deprivation, the emotional effects of, uh, of not being able to sleep properly. Um, that's going to be something that uh, I, I think for a lot of people that want to sell particularly shorthanded, there's lots of good information there. But also bear in mind that sleep research has a lot of work has been done in the last 20 years. A lot of work has been understood uh, a lot more deeply in the last five years. You may have your ideas of, of what sleep's about and how to deal with it and you sleep when you die. That's what I used to say. I don't say that anymore. I've been educated and my life's better for it. I'd love to share that learning with you. And then finally, uh, the last thing we we'll are be doing is another interview, and that's with my friend Ashling Phoenix. Um, she did the ARC last year uh, on her 45-foot boat with her family, uh, husband Wolf and their two children. And um, she wrote a fantastic blog, which got picked up all over the place. Um, and she's written a little book now, which is available on, uh, on Amazon. I've already downloaded it. It's called The Sersha Diaries. Um, but I warn you now that uh, Sersha, which I have had to literally look up <laughs> how to pronounce it to be able to put it into this uh, podcast, um, it's not spelt the way you think it might be. It's spelled S-A-O-I-R-S-E. Sersha, and it's uh, it's an Irish word that means freedom, so it's a fantastic name for their boat. But the blog um, has all been collected together and put into this one place. It's available on Kindle, and it's available as a paperback. Um, in her own words, the paperback is is kind of expensive because that's what happens when you do short runs of um, of books. But jeepers, it's not that expensive. It's well worth it. And uh, I started to read it um, yesterday because my intention is to get it read before I interview Ashling. And um, it's brilliant. It's really brilliant. And what it is, is a really uh, clear, uh, real world, realistic view of what it is to be on a boat and to be getting involved in a big dream, but have children with you. For everybody who's got kids, you know, you know, just leaving the house is complicated enough. Just uh, getting down the road in the car is complicated enough. Now imagine you're on a 45 foot boat in the middle of the ocean, uh, pushing yourself as an individual, as an adult. And then you've got children with you. How do you handle that? How do you keep them safe? It's all there in the book. And that's the Sersha Diaries. But yeah, if you're looking it up, S-A-O-I-R-S-E. Um, and uh, I'll be glad to speak to the woman who has messed up autocorrect on my phone for years. As you can imagine, I type the word sailing into my phone a lot. And if I misspell just slightly, it always starts putting Ashling, A-I-S-L-I-N-G, her name always ends up in my uh, phone. So that should be, it should be fun. We, uh, we were in the Navy together, like way back when. So just having to try and remember now, make sure there's nothing she can say, which can be too incriminating. But um, yeah, that's all ahead. So I'm going to do my part to put stuff out there. I'm not sure you'll be able to consume it all that quickly. I know that um, my mate uh, Rob and uh, uh, Doug McCutcheon, uh, they'll be listening in. Um, but don't worry if there's uh, maybe there's some bits for you don't want to listen to. But if you are listening in, Try and spread it around. Try and share it around. Put some comments, likes, that kind of stuff. It really helps. And then it makes the podcast something which is a no-brainer for me to do. Clearly, I don't mind chatting away. I'm sitting here still in Nova Scotia looking out the window. It's very sunny today. I'm getting up to my allotted time now. And uh, we'll shut up and leave you to whatever it is you're doing. And uh, speak to you in the next one. And as I always say, and it's always absolutely relevant wherever you are, 
and whatever you're doing. I hope that you are safe and sound. We are still in this weird period, but we know now that perhaps the vaccine's coming and we've got to get our heads around that. Just keep it sensible. Christmas is around the corner. Don't get like at a point where you just have to break all the rules to have Christmas just a little bit longer and we're going to be fine. We'll get through this. Let's keep each other sane and um, get on the water as soon as we can. Man, I cannot tell you how excited I am to do the Spartan event, which goes from Stavanger in Norway, which I've never been to, to the Faroe Islands, which I've never been to, and on to Iceland, which I've never been to. So I got a lot to look forward to in, uh, in 2021. I hope you do too. But until we speak again, cheers. Cheers.